I did quite a bit of traveling this past Thanksgiving and Christmas, back and forth from Dallas and through the state of Arkansas to visit family, and there were a few times, especially in the larger cities, when we got stuck in traffic. Now, I have a GPS on my phone that's often updated, and though it often takes me the quickest route to the place where I need to be, mine's not advanced enough yet to tell me where the wrecks and the road work is and where the delays are. And I don't know if they've, they've uh, come up with the device like that just yet, but I'll be interested in buying one when they do because I hate being stuck in traffic thinking I could have gone another way, which may be a little bit longer and avoided this mess all together. It, it would help so much to know the obstacles and roadblocks that are in the way before leaving my house so that I could avoid them and get to where I need to be. At times it helps to have that kind of information, right? That's true when driving, and that is especially true in our spiritual lives. Believers, this Christian life that we are called to live for God is a journey. And it has a starting point and a final destination. But along the way, as we move from where we once were to where we're headed, there are a lot of obstacles that we have to overcome. And at times, these obstacles can prevent us, they can keep us from being where God has called us to be spiritually. But here's the, here's the good news for us. The good news is that unlike my GPS on my phone, God tells us in his word of a lot of these obstacles that we are faced with in this life that hinder us and that keep us from being who he has called for us to be in Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you have your Bibles turned to Acts 19, yes, you heard me correctly, we're back in Acts finally. Continuing on through our sermon series we've been in for the past uh, year and a half. And uh, uh, this sermon series is entitled, To the Ends of the Earth. And we're going to hit it hard and heavy. We're going to go through summer and hopefully finish in the, in the fall of this year, okay? So we're going we're gonna to finish it sooner or later. And for those of you all who remember, I'd be impressed if you did, where we were when we left off in Acts, toward the end of Acts chapter 18, I'll just tell you, Luke tells us that after Paul spends some time in Antioch, he, he leaves again. And he goes back out on his third missionary journey. So that's where we are, on Paul's third missionary journey. And he goes again on this third missionary journey back through the region of Galatia and Phrygia. He goes through there on his first missionary journey, on his second missionary journey, and on his third missionary journey. And the reason why he does that is for the purpose of strengthening the disciples in that church there. And we learn in Acts chapter 19 verse 1 that after going through and checking on these churches, once again, Paul goes to Ephesus. Look at Acts chapter 19, verse 1. Luke says this. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, 
Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Remember last time, we I know you've slept since then, so I'll remind you, we left Apollos in Corinth. And Luke tells us that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul came to Ephesus. And he ministered in this city for about three years. And though we learn here and elsewhere that Paul had a very fruitful ministry in Ephesus, he also had a very difficult ministry in this city. So we're going to look at the challenging yet fruitful ministry of Paul in Ephesus. And I want to do this today by pinpointing for you from this text the common obstacles that Paul was faced with, that we're faced with today, that that often prevent people from coming to know the Lord and prevent us as believers from growing in godliness. So this morning I want to mention three common obstacles that Paul faced with those he ministered to in Ephesus that we face as well that prevent us from becoming all that God has called for us to be in Christ. Here's the first obstacle. Obstacle number one is a lack of knowledge about the truth. In verses 1 through 10, Luke makes mention of Paul going to share the gospel with three separate groups of people in Ephesus. The first two were in a similar boat in that they had some of God's message. They had the message in part, but they did not have the entire message. So Paul goes to them first to share God's gospel with them. The first group was the Jewish disciples of John the Baptist. That's group number one, the Jewish disciples of John the Baptist. Look at Acts chapter 19, verse 1 through verse 5. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Very interesting. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after them, after him, that is, Jesus. Verse 5. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So Paul is on his third missionary journey, and we're told that he goes to Ephesus, and when he does, he has this very unique encounter with 12 guys. We learn later that there were 12 of them. They were disciples, but they were not the 12 disciples of Jesus. They were the 12 disciples of John the Baptist. They were probably Jewish And at some point during John the Baptist's ministry, before the ministry of Jesus, apparently this group had moved out of that area to Ephesus. Or maybe they were just in that area for a period of time. They heard John the Baptist and then they moved out to 
through Ephesus. And when, when Paul first encounters these guys, he can tell that there is something different about them, which is why he asks, did you guys receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul is filling these guys out, isn't he? He, he knows that they are set apart a bit, especially from the pagans, but even from the Jews as well. So he asked these guys, have you guys given your life to Jesus? Have you been indwelt with the Spirit of God? And, and they say this, it's very interesting. They say, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul inquires a bit further. He says, into what then were you baptized? I love that by Paul. Uh, about Paul, by the way, don't you? He, he's trying to find out where these guys are so that he can meet them where they are and lead them to Jesus. And he finds out that they are a unique group. They're different from the Grecian Jews that he ministered to, different from the God-fearers, the, the Gentile converts to Judaism, and different from the, the pagan Gentiles as well. These guys are Jewish disciples of John the Baptist. They said, we have been baptized by John. Now, I know this is a strange encounter for us. I'm sure some of you are thinking, what does Luke mean when he says that these men had not received the Holy Spirit but had been baptized by John the Baptist? Well, it's important for us to understand here that this event recorded for us here is taking place at a very unique time in history. The central event of history, of Christian history, redemptive history is what? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, right? And so during this time period, when Paul was ministering, there were people who were alive before Jesus' earthly ministry and who were alive after this great event of his death, burial, and resurrection. These 12 guys are an example of this. They were around before Jesus' earthly ministry and were around afterwards. So they stood at a very unique time in history. And at this time, though they had heard John the Baptist's message of repentance and had heard him probably preach about a Messiah to come, apparently they had responded to that message. They had gotten prepared. They had been baptized by him. They had apparently left that area before Jesus's earthly ministry Began. So they knew who John was, and they knew there was this Messiah to come. They just did not know that the Messiah had, in fact, come. Which is unfortunate for them, right? That they left. But I want you to notice here, God doesn't forget about them, does he? He sends Paul to Ephesus to these men to minister to them and to fill in the blanks for them. How awesome is that? But they're a lot like the Old Testament saints. Only Christ has already come, right? You see, most everyone in history has lived at a time either before Christ's earthly ministry or after. And the, the, the faithful, God's people who were around before Christ took on flesh and lived for us and died for us and was raised again for us, they were looking forward to this time in history and looking forward to and anticipating this Messiah to come. And those in the generations to follow all the way through to today, we are looking back 
and a Messiah who has in fact come. But these guys are kind of straddling these two, these two periods of time here in Acts 19. And so Paul lets him know that the Messiah has in fact come. They didn't know that. Look at what he says. He says, verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So notice here, Paul tells them about Jesus. He informs them that the one John was pointing them toward had in fact come. He accomplished our salvation through his person and work. And after Paul shares the gospel with them, we're told that they believed, they were saved and baptized, showing that they were no longer followers to be associated as followers of John the Baptist, but rather as followers of Jesus Christ. And notice What happens next? Look at verses 6 and 7. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So notice here, once again, we have another group who once they get saved, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they begin speaking in tongues. The Holy Spirit was poured out on this unique group of Jews, these Jewish disciples of John, like he was on the Jews in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, like he was with the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, like he was with the Gentiles in Caesarea in Acts chapter 10. And though we've already talked about this many times already, I'm not going to go back into it in detail this morning. You can go back and listen to my sermons on Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 10 on why I believe the Jews and the Samaritans and the Gentiles all spoke the mighty works of God in different languages after the Spirit fell. I'll say this. I want you to notice something here. Notice that in all of these situations, there were apostles to witness these things. And the reason why is so that they could then go and report back to the Jews in Jerusalem, which is what Peter and John do, do, which is what Paul does. And Paul also reports to the Gentiles in Antioch, and they say this, you're never, you're never going to believe what happened. The Samaritans and the Gentiles and this unique group of Jews, these Jewish disciples of John in Ephesus got the same thing we got in Acts chapter 2. God allows for each of these groups to have a similar experience. And he allows for these influential Jews from Jerusalem to witness this, to go back then and report to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem that God has worked in the same way amongst all of these groups so that no group would view themselves as being any better than anybody else. God is breaking down these dividing walls between these different groups in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit. But the main point I want you to see here is that the obstacle for this group is that they don't have the whole truth. They're they're lacking in their knowledge of the truth. So were the Jews in Ephesus, which is why Paul goes to them next. That's the second group, the Jewish Ephesians. 
Look at verses 8 and 9. And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, underline that, by the way, continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he, Paul, withdrew from them. So notice Paul stays true to form here, right? After going to the disciples of John the Baptist, who were the closest to understanding the message because they understood they were sinners in need of saving and were looking to the Messiah to come, they just did not know he had come. After going to them, Paul goes to the Jews in Ephesus. Though they were in a different place from those in the first group, they were still meeting in the synagogue on a regular basis and they were studying the scriptures. So, so Paul goes to them next and in typical Paul fashion, he spends three months speaking to them and reasoning with them, attempting to persuade them that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, the fulfillment of all that was promised in the scriptures. So he meets them where they are. And he fills in the blank for them as well. But notice their response is a bit different. Luke tells us that some of them, after hearing the message, became stubborn and continued in unbelief. Luke here, I believe, is indicating a conscious decision not to believe. They willfully continued in unbelief, and they even spoke evil of the way, that is the way of salvation. The, they spoke evil of the Christian faith. They were critical of and spoke evil about the message of salvation, and they spoke evil about those who were trusting in Christ alone for salvation and following Jesus. And they did it in front of all the Jews. So their response was a bit different from the first group, right? The disciples of John. And the question we need to ask ourselves is why? Why did they respond differently? Did Paul mess that message up when he was with the, the Jews in, in Ephesus? Did he, did he botch the message? Is there something he left out? No. I, I believe the Holy Spirit would let us know that, right? In his word if he did. So the question then is, why didn't they respond positively to the message? Luke tells us. They willfully continued in unbelief. That word translated continued in unbelief means they refused to believe. They knew what Paul was saying. I'm sure Paul was very convincing in the way in which he said it. Yet they refused to believe it. And I'm sure many of y'all have had encounters like that, haven't you? I know I have. And at times, you get that response. You may share the message accurately and passionately and convincingly, and people will willfully refuse to believe it. And that's not on you, that's on them. Paul understood this, and after that, we're told, he went on to a third group, and the third group was the non-Jewish Ephesians. Look at verses 9 and 10. And Paul took the disciples with him, those who responded positively to his message, and we are told that they went to the hall of Tyrannus, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. 
They continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia, that's amazing, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Boy, Paul was busy, wasn't he? So after going to the synagogue, Paul goes to the non-Jews in the hall of Tyrannus, and all we know about this place from the history books is that it was a place where people met during the hottest part of the day, probably between the time of 11 a.m. and and 4 p.m. And this was a place like the Areopagus in Athens in Acts chapter 17 where the Greeks met together and they talked philosophy. They took time out of their work day and talked about the deeper things of life and they shared a variety of religious beliefs. And, And here's the thing with the Greek philosophies in this day that were circulating at this time. Though the Greeks during this time were were terribly misled, they they were darkened in their understanding of things, there were some things that they just observed by observing the natural world that were on point, which we can do, by the way. People can can observe certain truths about God and, and about the state of things in the world by just studying the world. One, they knew that there was a higher being. Now, some of them believed in beings. They were polytheistic, which is, which is incorrect. But they believed in a higher being who had created all that is. They also knew that things were not right in the world. Do people know today that things are not right in the world? better believe it that's why oprah has a channel by the way that's why the largest section of books in any major bookstore is self-help we know things are not right just by observing the world around us and they they knew that they they learned these things just by observing the natural world and so we're told that paul like he did in athens he met these pagan ephesians where they were in an attempt to take them from where they were and lead them to Jesus and we're told he did this daily he reasoned with them daily for two years and he made sure that all of the residents in this area heard the word of the Lord both Jews and Greeks that's that's amazing but again we see this is a major obstacle for Paul to overcome you have these different groups in different places in their understanding of the truth who do not have the whole story and that's an obstacle for us today, right? When we, when we share our faith as well. That keeps people today from coming to the Lord and getting to the place where God needs them to be spiritually. This is a challenge that we're faced with, and it's our job to do the work that Paul did. We got to dialogue with people. We got to find out where they are. We got to learn what they believe so that we can meet them where they are and lead them to Jesus so that we can be bridges to Christ for them. Paul was here. There's another obstacle we see in this story as we look at it that was a major obstacle then and is a major obstacle today, and that's the obstacle of majoring in the minors. Majoring in the minors. What keeps people from coming to know the Lord and others from from growing in godliness is a focus on the wrong things. Some don't don't have the complete truth. They they don't know all the ins and outs of the gospel, and that's, that's that's a roadblock, that's an obstacle. But for others, it's focusing on the wrong things, majoring in the minors. 
Many get caught up in secondary things, on second shelf issues, and they neglect that which is most important. In this passage, we learn of a group of Jews who, like Simon the sorcerer in Acts chapter 8, they were attracted to the miraculous works that Paul was doing in the name of Jesus rather than the message that he was proclaiming, the gospel message, that one could be forgiven of sin and made right with God through faith alone in Christ alone. Now, before we discuss who these guys were and what they did, we need to first talk about why these guys were drawn to Paul. And we learn that in verses 11 and 12. Look at it. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Very interesting passage here. And there have been many who have used this passage to support what they do in ministry. There are some today who mail out handkerchiefs, holy hankies is what many call them, and they send them to those who are sick in exchange for money for their ministry, which, by the way, Paul never does. And and they use this passage in support of that. Now, don't hear me say I don't believe miracles happen today. I most certainly do. But I want you to notice here that what's taking place in Acts chapter 19 is unique. And the reason why I know that is because Luke tells us that it is. He says, and God was doing what? Extraordinary miracles. Also translated unusual, special. This was out of the norm. This was not something that happened every time Paul gathered with a group of believers. This was not something that was happening week after week after week. God is working in a special, unique, and extraordinary way here in that we're told that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched Paul's skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. This is similar to the work that God was doing in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 5 when we're told that the shadows of the apostles touched the sick on cots and mats and they were healed very unique and you should know by now if you've been with us for any length of time through this study that the reason why God is doing these great miracles is to highlight his messenger and most importantly to highlight the message of his messenger to draw attention to his gospel message But in Acts 19, there's a group of Jews who have little to no interest in the message. They just want to perform the miracles. Look at verse 13 and 14. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. I always laugh when I read that. It's just funny sounding. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. So here you have the seven sons of Sceva, whom we are told are Jewish exorcists who traveled around at this time trying to deliver people from demonic spirits. That was their main focus in ministry. And the history books tell us that at this time they had these extensive ceremonies where they used all of these spoken formulas 
for how to rid people of these demonic influences. But notice, they had apparently not seen anything like the work that God was doing through the Apostle Paul, which is why they take what he did and said, and they try to replicate it for themselves. They try to use it for themselves. And notice, they're they're not focusing on the, the message that Paul preached. Notice that again. But instead, trying to mimic the way he cast out demons and healed the sick. We're told that they invoked, they spoke the name of Jesus in a ritualistic way. Not in an honoring way, but in a manipulative way. They tried to use his name to get what they want. And by the way, can I just take another side note here and and make mention of the fact that people do this today. They use Jesus' name, they say in Jesus' name in in a ritualistic, manipulative, flippant way and not in an honoring way. They need to pay close attention to this story here. They were focused on second shelf, secondary things. They were neglecting the most important thing, the reason Paul came to spread the gospel of salvation through Jesus. And notice what happens with this group of Jewish exorcists. Look at verse 13. Notice that when they try and use Paul's method of casting out evil spirits, they go to a person and, and, and this person has an evil spirit and they say, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims, come out. Notice what happens, verse 15 through 17. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And The man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Now that is a beating. If you get beat naked, you got beat down. Right? I mean, they literally beat the pants off these guys. Verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. What an embarrassment for these guys, both Jews and Greeks. But notice what else happened. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled or exalted or praised. There is so much here. But, but first, let's, let's address one of the obvious points here. Notice that the evil spirit knew Jesus and knew Paul, but didn't know these guys. And the reason why is because they were not associated with Paul. They did not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Evil, demonic spirits know who Jesus is. And they know who belong to him. And they tremble at his name when it's used in an honoring way, in a reverent way. And they tremble at the work that he does through his faithful followers. This evil spirit did not bat an eye at the sons of Sceva. There's no true power there. Notice also that God uses the failure and the embarrassment that resulted from this encounter to make his name and his gospel great. Word traveled that this group of well-known traveling exorcists were powerless against this one evil spirit and that Paul was casting them out left and right through handkerchiefs and aprons. And as a result of that, we're told that fear fell upon them all and they praised the Lord Jesus. Notice it doesn't say they praised the apostle Paul. 
doesn't say that, does it? Fear fell upon them, and they praised the Lord Jesus. Why? Because that's where Paul was directing them. Paul's life was like an arrow pointing to Jesus. When, when people came to Paul to hear his message, they quickly turned to Christ. Many of them did because that's where his focus was in ministry, and that should be true of us as well, believers. And as a result of this, we're told that many turned from their wicked practices. Look at verses 18 through 20. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging or telling about their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now get this, I read in one commentary that said that this would have been about $6 million in today's currency. I mean, revival was breaking out in this city. Verse 20, I love how it ends. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Why? Because that's the message Paul was preaching. When people came to Paul, they soon heard God's gospel message and many of them turned to the Lord because that's where Paul's focus was in ministry. And again, that's to be my focus in ministry. That's to be your focus in ministry. Christ and him crucified, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We have a tendency to get bogged down in second shelf issues in major and minor things that often put the spotlight on us and what we know and what we do and they turn people's attention away from the main thing which is Christ and him crucified. I want you to see this here before you leave. Please see that if you don't see anything else. And, and when we do that, you know what we do? We create barriers for people to come to know the Lord and grow in godliness. Listen, I don't think we want to know the number of people who have flooded in to places like this Sunday after Sunday and they listen to people majoring on minor things on second shelf issues and who minister in such a way where they're elevated and the gospel is minimized or completely omitted I think many of us would weep if that number came up on our screens today listen Though we know the ultimate fate of the enemy, I tell you, Satan is winning in those congregations. He is. So that's another roadblock. That's another barrier, another obstacle to God's gospel. One more thing, one more obstacle we see in this story that was a major obstacle then and is a major obstacle today, and that is idolatry. Idolatry. Now we're going to look at the second half of this story in greater detail next week. But let me just say this. In the next passage we're going to look at, we're going to learn that the Ephesians, in addition to a lot of other issues that they had, they had a worship problem, an idol problem. Idolatry was common practice in, in Ephesus. And when people began to turn away from their false gods and goddesses in this city and they turn their life up and over to the Lord Jesus this, uh, this upset many more because this hit a lot of folks in their wallet 
See, idolatry was big business in Ephesus. We're going to learn that next week. So this city and people in this city, influential people in this city, they took a hit financially when people turned to Christ, which is awesome, by the way, right? Isn't it awesome when, when wicked businesses take a huge hit when people come to Christ? We should praise the Lord for that. So as a result, people opposed Paul and they began to riot against the Christians. So you, you had a, a group in Ephesus who had given their lives to Christ. They were worshiping the one true God of the scripture through Jesus. And there were others worshiping false gods. And there were another group of people worshiping the almighty dollar. And they're the ones who, who stir up things in the city. And this conflict becomes a major barrier, another major obstacle to the advancement of the gospel in Ephesus. And here's the thing. Many of us, we hear stories like this in Scripture, and we say to ourselves, though I know that was an issue in that day, that's not really our issue today. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not bowing down to little wooden statues in, in my home here. Not really our issue, but here's the thing. I agree with the theologian who once said, the human heart is an idol-making factory. Very true. We create idols, and we worship them all the time. An idol is, is anything that pulls our attention away from the one true God. It's anything we give ourselves to, our time and our money and our energy to, more than God. And if you have a tough time pinpointing what idols you have in your life, just ask yourself this question. What is something in my life that if God asked me to give it up, I would hesitate and I would try my best to hold on to it? There you have it. It's important that we pinpoint the idols in our life and pray that God would give us the grace that we need to hold loosely to the things of this world so that we can be more devoted to the things of God and, and be more of who he has called for us to be in Jesus. So there are many barriers in our world that keep people from knowing the Lord and growing in godliness. One being that we're sinners. I mean, that's the major issue right there, right? The sin in our, in our lives and world. We have turned away from the God who made us. We have our hearts set on rebellion. God has created us for a relationship with him, and we have rejected his rule and reign, and we have chosen to go at life on our own. Yet, though that's the case, here's the good news for us. The good news is God has gone to great lengths to make things right between us and him again he's done so by sending his son god sent his son god the son came willingly from heaven to earth to be what we could never be perfect inside and out took on flesh he became one of us he lived the perfect life for us he fulfilled all righteousness for us but not only that he laid his life down for us he died the death we deserve to die and he was raised so that we through him through faith alone in him alone could have his righteous life applied to us so that we could be forgiven of sin and so that we could be raised to walk in newness of life with him so that we could have life eternal in him that's what God has done for us by sending his son. That's what Jesus has accomplished for us. And if you have never laid hold of that, if you have never trusted in Christ, if you're not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation right here and right now, now's the time to do it. I urge you today, if you have not, turn from your sin. 
Make God's Son your Lord today and be saved. Let's pray.